From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Now, Mary Kissel. Has China's Belt and Road infrastructure project peaked? And Beijing acknowledges running internment camps for Muslims in Xinjiang province, sort of. Welcome to Foreign Edition. I'm Mary Kissel with the Wall Street Journal editorial board, broadcasting to you from News Corporation headquarters in New York City. And I am joined by my friend and colleague, fellow editorial board member Hugo Restall, who is calling in yet again from an undisclosed location somewhere out there in Asia Pacific. Who knows? Maybe he is lounging on a sunny beach in Koh Samui. Welcome back, Hugo. Hi, Mary. It's good to talk to you again. Okay, let's start with China's Belt and Road Project. Uh, big infrastructure project, been going for several years now. And yet it's hit a few speed bumps. What's happened, Hugo? Well, right at the moment, Mahathir Mohamed, the prime minister of Malaysia, is in Beijing trying to renegotiate some of these projects and uh, reduce uh, Malaysia's commitment to the, uh, to the projects. Um, meanwhile, Burma, uh, Myanmar, is also trying to reduce the size of its projects, a, a major uh, port uh, the Kyaukyu port, um, which they're seeking to downsize from a $7.3 billion project to a $1.3 billion project. Um, and as we've discussed before in Pakistan, uh, there's a new government as well. Imran Khan was just sworn in, and he now faces the decision of whether to uh, downgrade Pakistan's commitment to uh, to projects that have, have severely added to their debt crisis so the the confluence of all these different events um, creates the impression that uh, uh, countries around the region are reconsidering the wisdom of signing up to the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, but uh, of course, uh, there's still a great deal of momentum in Asia and, and elsewhere. So I think we're we're uh, speculating a bit that, that this could be the peak, but uh, it does feel like the tide is turning in terms of the sentiment towards it. And it seems like Sri Lanka's experience was a major turning point, Hugo, and a red exactly. flag, a red flag, so to speak, sorry uh, for the commie pun there, um, for many of these countries, because they were put very deeply into debt and had to turn over a project to Beijing, a port project, if memory serves. And right. that experience has been specifically quoted um, by some of these national leaders as, um, you know, a warning. You don't want to go the way of Sri Lanka. Right. So the Hambandota port uh, complex uh, involved about $6 billion in debt. And uh, it was the port was poorly cited. It was cited in the uh, hometown of a former uh, strongman leader of, of Sri Lanka. And, <laughs> of course, uh, it was. <laughs> and, and, uh, and an airport put right next to the port, which which has also been a complete failure. Both the port and the airport have seen minimal traffic. I mean, the airport is practically deserted, and uh, so there's no way that uh, Sri Lanka can generate the revenue from these projects in order to service the debt. And as with many other Chinese projects, the uh, the debt was not on particularly favorable terms the, in terms of the interest rate and the re repayment terms. So uh, it was almost as if it was calculated to drive the Sri Lankans into uh, a crisis. And 
the outcome um, was that they've turned over the Hampton Toda port to a Chinese company on a 99-year lease, mm. um, given them 70% control of the, the project. And uh, the speculation is that in the long run, the Chinese may try to use the port for military purposes, give them a, a very convenient uh, deep water port on the Indian Ocean from which to challenge India uh, in particular um, and to uh, control the trade routes um, across the Indian Ocean to the Persian Gulf. So uh, this is uh, this is a, a warning to all the other countries that are, are accepting Chinese projects that to look more carefully at the terms and at the sustainability of the projects and what China's long-term intentions may be. Yeah, when you say could threaten India, I mean, it's almost an understatement, Hugo. I mean, you are an understated kind of guy, but um, <laughs> I mean, look, you can practically stand on the northern tip of Sri Lanka and look over into India. It's that close. Um, Hugo, the other circumstance here is, of course, you, you've named off three countries in Malaysia uh, in particular, uh, Pakistan, um, uh, in Burma, whose economies are not very strong. And Malaysia in particular, of course, just uh, democratically overthrew the long-running UMNO grip on power. UMNO, of course, the, the ruling party of Malay nationalism uh, that ran the country for decades and ran it into the ground um, in recent years because of you know, corruption. Uh, you know, Mahathir Mohammed uh, is trying to turn that around. And I think part of that turnaround is looking at how the previous government uh, made corrupt deals. And I think they suspect that, you know, these Chinese deals could be wrapped up in some of those scandals. Am I, am I right? Right. Right. Corruption is definitely a, a big part of a lot of these projects. Um, one of the reasons that China is able to get countries to sign up to uh, to these uh, these terms that are not particularly favorable to those countries is that they give a large amount of money uh, up front, loan the money to uh, to the local leaders who are then able to use it for their own uh, corrupt purposes. And uh, we saw that definitely in the, in the Malaysian uh, uh, case where the UMNO government of Najib Razak um, was using some of this money to cover up the 1MDB scandal. That was a, a scandal in which uh, a large sum of money, uh, estimated by some to be you know, $4.5 billion, disappeared from a, a state-run investment fund. Um, and so money was, was being shuffled around within the Malaysian political establishment to cover up the problems at 1MDB. And the Chinese money definitely facilitated that in terms of the Chinese buying assets and, and investing. So, uh, you know, Mahathir campaigned against this and, and uh, was very outspoken. He even called it unequal treaties, uh, which to the Chinese is, you know, a very evocative term of, mm. of the imperialist powers taking advantage of China in the early 20th century. Um, and now he's in Beijing, and in just in the last day, he uh, issued a warning against a new form of colonialism. He didn't exactly spell out what that was, but I mean, it uh, 
it was really quite remarkable for him to to say that in Beijing. Oh, Hugo, um, let's read the whole quote. It's just fantastic. Uh, this yeah. is from Bloomberg News, and quote, this is, this is Mahathir, quote, you don't want a situation where there's a new version of colonialism happening because poor countries are unable to compete with rich countries in terms of just open free trade. It must also be fair trade, end quote. Hugo. Um, now, there's a tradition in China of uh, elder statesmen, intellectuals, speaking their mind and not suffering consequences. But to see an outsider like Mahathir come in and do this is just, I think it's fabulous. Right. He, he is uh, 93 years old and, uh, you know, he uh, he can get away with this, I think. Um, and in particular, you know, I think also a lot of these countries that have so many of these projects um, you get to a point where, uh, like the old saying, you know, you borrow a million dollars from the bank and the bank controls you. You borrow a billion dollars and you control the bank. For sure. Um, the, the Chinese need uh, now Malaysia to the projects in Malaysia to work. Um, otherwise, it would be a major embarrassment and, uh, you know, derail the whole uh, momentum of the Belt and Road Initiative. But, but Hugo, it's, so, it's such an opening for U.S. foreign policy if we had the mm -hmm. wit to take advantage of it, right? Because uh, here you have countries naturally pushing away from Beijing, you know, recognizing what the the Communist Party is trying to do, talking about a new form of colonialism. I mean, we, we should be all over the Asia Pacific saying, yeah, don't turn to China. Open up your trade with us. Come do business with us. Right, and 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 working on infrastructure. I mean, the uh, there is a pressing need for better trade infrastructure um, within these fast growing economies, and uh, the U.S. is looking to get into that act. I mean, there's a uh, there's a bill in Congress now, the Build Act, which uh, will increase funding for for infrastructure lending and and improve the structures that the U.S. has for that. Um, so I, I think the U.S. is uh, responding to this. Uh, the Trump administration is is potentially going to take advantage of this. But um, right at the moment, I mean, we're, we're playing hardball with Pakistan to try to push Imran Khan to, um, you know, to publish the terms of the loans with China and, uh, you know, draw back on some of the projects that may not be feasible um, in order to get a IMF uh, bridge loan to, to t tide them over this current uh, crisis. So the U.S. is, I think the U.S. is mobilizing now to, uh, to take advantage of China's mistakes in, in overreaching with the Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah, and we've got a great editorial, listeners. It's titled Another Belt and Road Hostage. It's up on wsj.com forward slash opinion if you want to take a look. We're talking about the Belt and Road Initiative, and you're listening to Foreign Edition from The Wall Street Journal. WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. Drive time, gym time, anytime. Podcasts from The Wall Street Journal. 
Check out all our shows at wsj.com slash podcasts. That's wsj.com slash podcasts. From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Now, Mary Kissel. Welcome back to Foreign Edition. Mary Kissel in New York. Hugo Restall, somewhere out there in Asia Pacific, maybe on a beach. We don't know. We're going to stay on the topic of China because Beijing has finally admitted the existence of camps for Muslims in Xinjiang, China. Uh, but the official, He Lianhe of the United Front Work Department, calling them, quote, vocational training centers. Hugo, uh, when I say camp, I don't mean camp is in a, a tent, uh, you know, somewhere out in the forest. You know, we're talking about internment camps, re-education camps, so to speak, throwbacks uh, to the 1950s in China. Uh, but how significant is it that we finally have a party official uh, at least saying, yes, they exist, they're there? Right. Up until now, they've, uh, they've, they've kept this uh, as a state secret, and uh, they've, uh, they've condemned those people who are trying to expose this huge human rights abuse um, as anti-China elements, uh, spreading lies. Um, they're still accusing uh, uh, those of us who are, who are publicizing this of being anti-China elements, but they've, they've done a modified limited hangout, as Nixon would say, and, uh, and they've, they've admitted that there are such camps, but they're vocational schools and nobody's being arbitrarily uh, detained. Yeah, when you say the, um, the they, Hugo, you mean the Xi Jinping regime. Right. This is uh, United Front Work Department is is a rather mundane name for a sinister organization which uh, is dedicated to controlling uh, uh, the, the portions of the population, the ethnic minorities in particular. Um, and uh, these camps, we're now learning from testimony from people who have who have been released from the camps. Uh, use a variety of, of methods, including uh, torture. I mean, they, they, they strap people down in chairs uh, for days at a time in extremely painful positions to interrogate them. And uh, other people, they force them to sing patriotic songs to say that they will no longer pray. It's a very anti-religious uh, agenda in these camps, uh, basically telling people that the Quran is nonsense, mm. uh, that they were wrong to have ever believed in, in Islam, and they should only believe in the Communist Party and Xi Jinping, you know, give the thanks to Xi Jinping before meals instead of giving thanks to Allah, um, etc. So uh, a lot of these things are, are, are extremely outrageous, anti-religious uh, agendas that we haven't seen in China on such a scale since the Cultural Revolution. Yeah, listeners out there might be confused and think, well, but... You know, China does allow certain forms of worship, um, even even Catholics worshiping in China. But the catch is that, of course, the CCP itself is an atheist organization. And when we talk about religion in China being allowed, quote unquote, um, that quote unquote religion is completely subordinated to the party. Um, that's why it was so outrageous, for instance, when Pope Francis suggested that he could do a deal with the Communist Party to allow um, you know, Catholic practice in China uh, out in the open rather than in the underground church, because, of course, that's just not possible. You'd have to be subordinated to the Communist Party elites. It's completely antithetical to the idea of freedom right. of, of religion, right? 
Right. And there's a, a general anti-religious campaign going on at the moment where in other parts of China, churches are being demolished, uh, mosques are being demolished. Um, and, uh, you know, the there was, for a time, a, a relatively more permissive attitude towards mainstream religion. The, the party seemed to be moving towards a position that uh, mainstream religions aided in social stability. Now uh, it's a return to absolute control, and any church or mosque um, that is not uh, towing the line absolutely to the party um, will be stamped out. So uh, it's not just Xinjiang. I think Xinjiang is the, the leading edge of this, this campaign and this tendency, but it's, it's really across all of China. And the Wall Street Journal, our fearless compatriots over on the news side, have managed to get into Xinjiang, which is just incredible, uh, and are reporting that uh, construction sites that they saw have doubled in size over the past year, in particular a site in Shul County. This is near Kashgar in the western part of the province. Hugo, they must be going in there at great risk because China controls the ability of foreign correspondents to travel very strictly. Uh, so I, I just found this reporting just, just absolutely remarkable. Right. Some of this reporting is based on satellite photos, uh, it has to be said. So um, they're, they're saying that uh, uh, some of these camps are still expanding just within the last couple of weeks. Mm. Uh, there's been a substantial expansion of these camps. But, but the reporters are going into Xinjiang, have been in Xinjiang, um, visiting, um, trying to visit these camps. Of course, they're, they're turned away. Um, and interviewing uh, uh, people who have been... Uh, confined to these camps, and their testimony is really appalling. So I think it's, I would urge people to go and, and look for the uh, for this article, which uh, on the web was published on August 17th, um, China's Uyghur camps swell as Beijing widens the dragnet. Uh, mm. It's a really remarkable uh, piece of reporting. And it's important to, to talk about it, and I'm, I'm happy to report that at least the Trump administration has started to talk about it. Um, Sam Brownback uh, at the State Department, the ambassador for religious freedom, has talked about it. Um, I, I, I would hope that we'd hear more of that language. Um, Hugo, uh, it's, it's also disturbing, though, to see uh, the sons and daughters, for instance, of those who have been interned speaking out, because to me, that's, that's a sign that it really is a desperate situation, because oftentimes... If you speak to relatives or, or friends of those who have been, quote unquote, disappeared in China, um, they don't talk uh, to reporters un unless the situation is very dire. It's, it's almost the last resort. Right. I think a lot of these people have nothing left to lose. Um, some of them have said, you know, I, I didn't talk before because I was afraid that uh, my mother or, or other relatives would be interned. Now that all of them have been interned, uh, there's nothing nothing left to lose. They might as well uh, speak out about it. Uh, also, they've been interning um, the relatives of, of Uyghurs and other minorities overseas mm. uh, to try to intimidate them into not speaking out, uh, including the relatives of reporters at uh, – uh, Radio Free Asia. Um, oh, it's so horrific. Been one, yeah, one terrible case. Um, Radio so, Free Asia, by the way, being a U.S. taxpayer-backed organization, so intimidating right, like, employees. Like America. Yeah, yeah. In intimidating Americans, essentially. Right. So it's um, 
it's really appalling the the testimony in particular i would i would urge people to look at um you know they were saying uh in the camps, there's a quote from one uh, one former uh, detainee saying they would also tell us about religion, saying there's no such thing as religion. Why do you believe in religion? There is no mm-hmm. God. Um, so it's it's um, it's it's a scale of uh, religious repression that um, you know is, is currently I think unparalleled in the world. I mean, there's really where else is there an atheist regime outside of maybe North Korea? That is uh, trying to stamp out religion in this way. Yeah, it's it's I I can't think of one, um, but uh, we're going to continue to call attention to it. And again, kudos to our colleagues on the news side for this this reporting. It's it's fantastic, and kudos too to the United Nations. And I don't do that very often. We don't compliment the UN very much on this podcast, but in this case, uh, they are also starting to talk about it. Yes, uh, the, the UN was holding hearings uh, about a week ago, um, uh, hearing some of this testimony, and the Chinese were were um, were denying everything. That may have been what what spurred them to uh, to make the admission that there were in fact uh, these camps, um, although they called them vocational training centers. Yeah, well, we'll continue to talk about it. Fortunately, we are out of time. So, on behalf of Hugo and me, Mary Kissel. Thanks for listening to Foreign Edition, and please tweet to us at Hugo Rustall and at Mary Kissel, all one word in both cases. We love your feedback. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you on Wednesday.